You're listening to the Family Discipleship Podcast, a podcast of training the church. So we tell a lot of hero stories where, hey, look how I made something great happen. And we tell a lot of victim stories. Here's how I've been wrongly treated. But the only stories actually worth telling are rescue stories, (laughs) which is I was in trouble and God got me out. And in some places and sometimes it's not wrong to make things easier. But if things are always easy, you never grow and you are never formed. We did a survey where we asked teenagers this question, if you could change one thing in your relationship with your parents, what would it be? Open-ended question. Most common answer is, I wish they would spend less time on their phones and more time talking to me. This is Adam Griffin. I'm here with my lovely co-host, first Mrs. Cassie Bryant. How are you doing today, Cassie? I'm doing great. You know, I'm... uh two and a half days away from turning 40. Whoa, happy birthday, Cassie. Can you believe it? So by the time people hear this episode, you'll be 40. What would you like for your birthday? Uh, Hang out with you guys, but maybe not this weekend. In a couple weeks. Maybe at an invite-only date yet to be announced, because it's kind of rude because our guest was not invited, but we can can talk about that. Our guest is welcome to fly to Dallas for my birthday party. We'll send him an invite after the fact. Also with us, who is invited, Mrs. Chelsea Griffin. How are you doing today, Chelsea? Hey, I'm doing good. Just happy to be here. Excited to have this interview. Chelsea is also turning an age this year. She'll have a birthday this year. That's true. Aren't we all? An age. I have a birthday every year now, which is pretty awesome. I love it. (laughs) I was almost born on leap day, which means I wouldn't have had a birthday every year. I was two days off. But speaking of people who have birthdays every year, and speaking of wonderful guests, guys, we are honored by the presence of the magnificent author, theologian, uh, one of my favorite writers and thinkers, Mr. Andy Crouch is with us today. Andy, how you doing today? Hello, hello, hello. So happy to be here. Good. I'm so honored you're with us. <laughs> Andy, you are one of Earth's busiest men, it seems oh, like. We have, I hope not. I hope We've not. either recorded six episodes or rescheduled one five times. I can't remember <laughs> which one it is, but we are so grateful for you. What are you up to so today, grateful. Andy? What, are you, what part of the world are you changing right now? I am in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is the longtime home of my parents, Wayne and Joyce. Um, my dad passed away in October. Uh, we're recording this in April, so about six months ago. And um, there's a lot of care to be done for my mom as she's in her own journey of aging and uh, kind of cognitive issues and lots of things that require a lot of presence from her two children. So I've been here for a few days and uh, I'm here a lot. Yeah. Well, that's hard. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult season to be in. The loss of your father, the mm. difficult care of your mother. We've mm. talked several times this season about um, adult children, being an adult child, oh, having, yes. having aging parents. Is there, as you're looking up with your mother and you're looking down to your own family, are there different things that you're telling your kids now going, hey, one day... <laughs> This is, um, I'm going to need you to do that. We always tell our kids, we need enough, you need to own a house with enough room in the driveway for our RV. So Ooh, I like it. For the RV. Of. Whoa, yeah, yeah. And That's a, hot a substantial drive. <laughs> Here's the list, kids, of uh, amenities we expect, actually. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm telling my kids anything different. My own kids, who are 25, 26, just turned 26, and 22, going on 23, um, but I know they're watching, you know, and participating in various ways. They, they have their own kind of lives. They, they live in other parts of the country right now. 
But there's a lot of things you go through for the first time, even late in life. You know, yeah. um, I remember I remember thinking about this when my dad was dropping me off for my first day of college. I was going away to college. And I'm the oldest of two kids. And I realized uh, I'm doing this for the first time as an 18-year-old. But my dad, as a whatever he was then, 45-year-old or whatever, is doing it for the first time too. Like he's never dropped a kid off. And I think, you know, having my own father um, die and having the incredible gift of being here the day that he died uh, with my sister and with one of my nieces, it's it's all first time. So my kids are watching me and my wife uh, as the daughter-in-law um, do this for the first time. And mm-hmm. so you don't really get to rehearse it. Uh, you don't have it all figured out at all. And yeah. I think we just try to include them and you know, in appropriate ways, in, in ways that are appropriate in, in what we are going through uh, as we try to serve our parents well. Yeah, what you just described feels like a microcosm or a, maybe a micro explanation of what parenting often is. It's like, oh, this is my, my first totally. time too. Let me invite you into learning this as I go. I may make a mistake that I will yeah. admit. I may not admit it and I need to. You know, you're just kind of like inviting them into that process. Oh my gosh. That's that's our whole life, right? That's as parents, the whole yeah, I, I imagine life. even now with twenty-something kids, you're still oh, doing that. Oh yeah. well, our son is getting married in June, and we've never done that before. We just yeah. met his uh, fiance's parents on Friday night. Actually, we've never done that before. And <laughs> you know, I also feel I mean, I remember this so vividly when our kids were were tiny. Is you you just get one stage figured out, and then it becomes irrelevant. You're on to the next thing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, wait, so wait, true. we just solved that problem. Can't we just stay <laughs> in the solved problem state for like a week? But yeah. um, it's just always it is always improv. That's right. Well, I know you're a man who loves your family. Even now, you're explaining a a um, expression of your love towards your mom in the way that you're there. You're caring for you. You love your own kids. If we asked one of your family members, we asked your kids, we asked your wife to describe you as a dad. What do you think they would say? Would they say, and, and maybe if, if different, what do you hope they would say about Andy Crouch, the father and the husband? Oh, goodness gracious. You know, I was giving a talk at my, my, so my daughter went off to college a few years ago and I was giving a talk at her school and the organizers asked her to introduce me. Um, mm. And it was very sweet. But but the first thing she said uh, when she said, well, I want you to know a few things about my dad that you probably don't know, but that I, as his daughter, know. <laughs> the first thing she said, I'm pretty sure was, my dad loves to take naps. <laughs> <laughs> Number one. <laughs> the first. <laughs> so I'm sure my children in particular, and my wife would certainly, t- I do love to take naps. In fact, we're <laughs> We're actually missing nap. I'm missing nap time today for you all. It is nap time right now. We are Um, honored. Well, the good news is most of our listeners listen to this to fall asleep. So right now is about (laughs) the time where they'll be passing out. So it's going to be nap time for somebody. Yeah, I do believe I set a timer for 35 minutes after lunch almost every day because I do work from home and have done for years and years. And uh, it's magical. I wake up so refreshed and happy. Uh, and I'm sure my kids do remember, like, after lunch, or especially on Sunday afternoons, there's no timer on Sunday afternoons. Oh, oh man. <laughs> and then she said, the next thing you, you want to know is my dad loves to clean things, Whoa. which is also true. I love, I love, you know, we call it detailing the car. I love doing that. I love cleaning the house. My wife says I should have advertised this before I got married because there aren't that many men who just love to clean, but I am absolutely It's one of my just great delights to get things clean. More substantively, gosh, I hope my kids would say that I listened to them and I 
took them on adventures at the right time and mm. stage of their lives. I think uh, a pretty formative thing for each child were some trips we took that where I included them in something that I easily could have done by myself, and it was more difficult to do it with them. But um, mm. it ended up being transformational, I would say, for them. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I would say my wife, Catherine, has a more complicated experience of me than my kids. I mean, I think my kids are pretty much 100% in the Andy Crouch fan club or dad fan club. I think my wife is uh, has had to learn some long-suffering and patience, as I have had to learn with her. And, you know, you just see more complexity, maybe, as a spouse than as a child. But That's true. But the kids now, as you know, young adults, they see more of the complexity, too, and you mm. can't hide it. And they yeah. they just see the complications in, and immaturity and all the things that are just still there. I love that. I feel like you and my husband, whose name is Eric, would get along. He's a napper. He's a great oh. napper. I'm a terrible napper. I uh, wake up cranky. Yeah, not everybody likes it. Sometimes yeah. with a headache, but he's a great napper. 20 minutes on the couch, he can nap while the kids are playing and running around the house. Uh, and then he's I also a clean, he's like a clean freak. He cannot go to bed with dishes oh, in the sink. Eric, so I really, I know it's very rare. And I, I know. <laughs> I'm like, you guys, you guys could be good friends. Okay. Tell us, as you were raising your kids, what did following Christ as a family look like for y'all? What were the rhythms of discipleship mm. that for you as a dad? Two things come to mind. And you know, our kids would talk about these things. I'm quite sure too. Um, one was a weekly rhythm and one was like an annual rhythm that really were the anchors of how we invited our children into life together with God and with each other, you might say. So the weekly rhythm, which I'm so grateful my wife had already adopted this pattern even before we met, was uh, just Sunday is Sabbath, the seventh day originally, but for Christians, the eighth day, the day of new creation, has been for a lot of Christians the time when we honor the command to keep the Sabbath holy. And both of us, both Catherine and I felt coming into our marriage that we wanted to have that pattern of six days of work, one day of rest, which it's amazing how rare this is in our world and honestly quite countercultural, including for Christians. And we just protected that day pretty faithfully for uh, from then till now. And so it became a day, for one thing, our kids knew, aside from the nap time, that they had my my and Catherine's full attention. Like, there no, we certainly had no screens on. We certainly had no work to do. We, we pro, in a sense, programmed or, you know, planned family things, uh, often had a big meal of one kind or another. As the kids got older, we started doing Sunday afternoon tea. Uh, we'd come home from church, take the men, the nap. How many times am I going to say the word nap in this podcast? Probably a lot. <laughs> we'll count. <laughs> and then started preparing all these little snacks and treats and then made a big pot of tea and often would invite friends you know, over as well. And it just became this rhythm of the goodness of God because Sabbath is about receiving the goodness of God. Receiving life as a gift, not having to earn it, work for it, achieve it. Of course, beginning with worship in the morning and then kind of playing out in a kind of multiple senses of that word play, the 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 gift of of the of the worship uh, into the rest of the day. And so that was great. And then the other thing that we did is we're part of a church, the the kind of Anglican tradition that makes um, a lot of the the sort of shape of the Christian year. And there are two kind of formative seasons in the Christian year as it kind of came together in the early centuries of Christianity. Advent, which leads up to Christmas, and then, of course, Lent, which leads up to Easter. And those seasons are meant to be times where the people of God 
kind of double down, you might say, on reflection, on penitence, on simplicity, and on preparation for celebration, which comes in the 12 days of Christmas. So our family celebrated not one day of Christmas. So many people celebrate Christmas on December 25th, and then they move on to, I don't know, whatever you do. We were so serious. Oh, we are going to make every one of those 12 days up until January 6th uh, a kind of holiday for our family. And then after Easter, you get 50 days, which it's very hard to sustain celebration for 50 days. But all <laughs> the rich desserts, all challenge like for the, accepted. I mean, for the grownups, the the best of the wine, the you know, just all the good stuff um, we would pack into those days of Easter. And I'll tell you what is missing from this this description, Cassidy, because it truly was missing. I I have always had this idea that if I were a good Christian father, we would have some kind of daily devotional as a family. And I just have to honestly tell you, I'm sure partly because of my own lack of discipline, we just didn't have that in any discernible way. <laughs> I mean, I I dream of a time when we would be like doing daily Bible study or something like that, or even just an extended prayer time. But it just felt like we we never got into that rhythm the whole time that we had kids. I will say my kids are both like seriously and joyfully following Jesus today. And so somehow those weekly times, which were very intentional and disciplined, and that that annual rhythm, and, and during Advent and Lent, we did manage to do it. So during Advent, we'd light the Advent wreath, you know, these four candles that you light during the four weeks. We would have an, a little service of evening prayer. Same thing in Lent. We'd have kind of all kinds of ways that we made ourselves aware that we're in a time of preparation. So, like, it worked for 20 days in December and 40 days in the late winter. And then the rest of the year, we were less successful in any kind of daily rhythm. <laughs> I so, wouldn't say that. I mean, well, well, I hear what you're saying. In daily rhythm, but success. I think, well, it's so encouraging. And I think our listeners will be very encouraged because the pressure to I have to so. do something every day oh, man. It's just of never, the year. Never and to feel happened. like that's what, yeah. So... I appreciate yeah. your honesty there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, how has being a dad impacted the way you view God as a father? Oh, my goodness. Quite transformative, I would say. Though though I have to say, you know, both of our children are biological children. They're our own children. And I feel like my my friends and acquaintances who have adopted actually get like 10 times the insight into mm-hmm. God's fatherhood of us. Because, of course, God is like a natural uh, biological father in that we are made directly in his image bear kind of the imprint of his his reality i guess in our bodies male and female um but of course adoption is kind of the christian model for what parenthood is um unnecessary not compelled by obligation like just free choice <laughs> and i suppose that what i've learned most about god probably comes from the mo- from the moments where i've had to ad- in a, in a kind of, if this is not an odd thing to say, adopt my own children, that is freely choose to love and pursue them when it wasn't natural to do that. I mean, I have a lot of natural affection for my kids. And that has helped me understand, like, God also has just natural affection for me. And uh, this is a bit of a, a side note, Cassie, but before I was ever married, I had a, a kind of pivotal spiritual transformation, a kind of real, like, uh, gi- a renewal or gift of the Holy Spirit that 
that kind of solidified for me my sense that I really was the beloved Son of God, that I really could hear said to me what the Father said to Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved Son, with you I'm well pleased. And I, I think I came into marriage and parenting by the grace of God and only through like sheer grace, like very co- conscious of that. So I had that sense of natural, God's natural love for me. And I had that for my kids. But, but I think it was the moments where I had to choose to love them in spite of being hurt by them, in spite of seeing them make suboptimal choices, <laughs> to mm. use a sort of general phrase, <laughs> in spite of having hurt them and having seen the hurt on their face. Now, God has never done anything of his own to harm us, though we do feel hurt by God. And I think even though God has not in the end done anything that we would ever hold against him in the long run, there are things we hold against him in the short run. And I think choosing love (laughs) when it was not easy and not natural, and then seeing the fruit of that kind of multiply over time, because the relationship Catherine and I have with our adult children now it is the great consolation of our lives. Like it's, mm-hmm. there, there, we have a lot of sadness, disappointment, loss to to bear, and like everyone does. In our case, and it's not true for every parent. It's not true for every godly parent. Um, but uh, we have lots of friends for whom this is not nearly so simple. But for us, we just have this deeply consoling, like fruitful relationship with Timothy and with Amy, that only came because we kept choosing love when things were going really wrong or hard. Hmm. So, I don't know. I I think I that helps me trust that my life with God is also going in that direction as as God's son. That's so good. Thank that you. That is so good. That's encouraging. Man, I love I love hearing stories like that that the relationship is intact today and that hmm. like you said a great consolation while you endure other grief. I hope for relationships like that one day with our sons. Amen. As you were raising your kids and thinking about your hopes for your family. What are the, the main scriptures that you really leaned into or always found yourself going back to? Ooh, what a good question. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was this uh, brings to mind, I was once on a Christian radio program, and the host said, we always ask our guests what their life first is. So what's your life first? Well, so I, you have to understand. I grew out outside. I grew up outside of um, kind of active Christian faith. My parents were not practicing the faith when I was growing up. My dad never was a believer. My mom only came back to faith much later in life. So I don't know anything about a lot of these evangelical things. Like a life, I've never had a life verse, and I and I'm it's live radio. <laughs> like what? <laughs> I need a life verse. Help me, help me, Jesus. And I realized I had one, even though I never called it that. It's at the very end of the Gospel of John when Peter is restoring, uh, sorry, Jesus is restoring Peter to relationship and responsibility in his church. And he says, uh, when you were young, you girded yourself and went where you wanted to go. But when you are old, someone else will gird you and take you somewhere you do not want to go. And that verse sort of lodged in my heart and my life as a very, as a young man, I would say, in my late teens, early 20s. And I was like, okay, I'm young right now, but my way is the way of, of discipleship, the way of following Jesus. And it's going to lead to times when I have to go somewhere I don't want to go. And that's like Jesus' goodness for me. 
Uh, so I, I said this first, you know, I gave it uh, aloud to the radio host and she said, no one has ever quoted that verse before because <laughs> it's not the most encouraging, right? It's not like, I don't know, all the paths of the Lord are love and faithfulness to those who keep his testimonies or whatever. You know, it's like you, you're, you're pretty happy and self, self-directed now, but as life goes on with Jesus, uh, of course, we know how it ended for Peter, like literally being taken into Rome and crucified upside down at his request uh, to not uh, just imitate Jesus, but uh, sort of submit himself to Jesus that to that extent. And while I don't know how often I thought about this in the context of parenting explicitly, it absolutely was um, in, I think for Catherine and me, in our minds, like we are not raising our kids to be happy <laughs> or to okay. be successful. Okay. Yeah. We are not raising our kids. I remember realizing at some point, like there's this thing called winning at high school. That's what I call it. I don't think anyone else calls it <laughs> that. But like winning at high school is like being popular, being kind of socially adept, um, other people thinking well of you. We are raising our children to die uh, for Jesus and with Jesus and in, in the image and in, in the mission of Jesus. Now, what form that will take, we don't know. And And the church has always said you should never seek martyrdom per se. It's, that's not a the right thing to seek, though it will come for some in history and has. But we're raising our kids to uh, embrace redemptive suffering, basically. Hmm. And um, that just changes the sort of perspective from which you approach problems that you run into or that your kids run into. And I think, you know, I, I don't know that I would have ever quoted that first to my kids because I think you sort of have to hear Jesus say that to you directly for yourself rather than have someone impose it on you. Mm-hmm. But it absolutely shaped how we parented. Like, we don't have the option of giving you an easy life. So instead, we're going to try to help you mm-hmm. bear what you've been given to bear with Jesus as your friend, your Lord, and your fellow suffering servant, you know, as your life goes on. That's good. Mm. Hey friends, it's March and that means Easter is right around the corner. In fact, Easter is in March this year. It's part of the reason I'm pumped to tell you about one of our sponsors who's got a really special Easter deal. This is a great time to get some new resources to disciple your family. Our friends over at Lithos Kids are having an Easter basket sale. They've got the brand new Little Pilgrims Big Journey complete box set. It's now available. Guys, I can't tell you how much I love this resource. If you don't have it, you need to go check it out. Kids and parents have loved reading about Bunyan's beloved tale of Christian and his adventure to follow the king's path to Celestial City. And now you can get all three books in one box set along with a map and it comes with a coloring book and the whole thing is just 60 bucks. You can use the code FAMILY10 to get 10% off your entire order at Lithos Kids right now. So what a great discipleship opportunity. To find all this, go to lithoskids.com, see all the items in their Easter promo, including their new release, The Parables of Jesus, and the Kingdom of God Bible Storybook. Guys, we love Lithos Kids. You're going to love them too. Go check it out today, lithoskids.com, and remember the promo, Family 10, to get 10% off your entire order. Sometimes hard things happen. Sometimes they happen to children. When God Makes Scribbles Beautiful is a beautifully illustrated book that helps kids trust that God can take their hard things and use them for good. 
This picture book imagines that the hard things in a child's life is a scribble following him everywhere. Readers will journey through God's promises from the Bible, inspiring hope and faith in God's good and redemptive plan. Hard things don't always go away, but God can turn them into something beautiful. Available at beautifulscribbles.com. Download a free parent connection guide and printable scripture cards. Well, our listeners love to be encouraged by both the good and the hard that happens in mm. uh, in the homes for for other believers, especially those who are a little ahead of us. Um, would you be willing to share any times that were particularly difficult for you guys as you led your home towards Christ? Mm. Well, I mentioned winning at high school, so I'll, I'll give you one category of things, which is our kids didn't win at high school, <laughs> at least in the sense of it being easy or finding kind of uh, popularity. It's a, a little tricky, of course, because I don't want to tell stories that uh, that are not mine to tell, sure. and some of these right. are their stories to tell. But I guess I'll just say that there were some really painful seasons of watching each of our children in different ways, because they're quite different people, uh, just watch them not find an easy fit with the world that they were in, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. And just yeah. coming home really lost and sad. And I remember my like third grade son coming home and saying, dad, I just go into the boys room and I sit on in, in the stall and I pray the Lord's prayer to try to get through the day. Mm. Cause oh. he just, it was hard. It was hard. And uh, you know, to this day, I'm not sure I could tell you all the reasons why. And you know, there's, I mean, there's other times of like conflict and that sort of thing, but gosh, watching your each, your children go through suffering that you can't really fix for them. Mm-hmm. Right. It was very difficult. And then, of course, especially with our daughter, there was a stage in high school where not only could we not fix it, she didn't want our help in fixing it. And and this, uh, you know, I heard someone say, it's probably something many people have said, and you may have heard it before, but like for the first 10 years, your kids run to you. You come home to the house and like they run to find you. And then there's some, something flips in the double digits for many kids, not all, but many, where they aren't really running to you anymore. And to some extent as a parent, you have to run to them. You have to pursue them and chase relationship with them because they're not necessarily chasing it with you. And my beautiful, talented, smart, uh, amazing daughter who in her single digits would just come to me and sit on my lap and talk with me about everything, would come home from school and, you know, late middle school and high school and just go up to her room, close the door. And we knew that whatever was happening in there wasn't great. Like it's just, she was struggling. She was suffering. She was trying to bear what she was bearing, but no invitation to help, you know? And gosh, I think those were, those were very dark times in some ways. Now we were, we were fortunate that we never felt like our kids were you know, on the threshold of real self-harm or other things that do happen. So we never felt that kind of, I think, fear that that you can feel as a parent at that stage. But we certainly felt like, wow, we're we're helpless. I guess that would be the word. So I will also say um, each of our children has a story of how God rescued them from all of that. And mm. uh, Praise God. I'm sure I cannot talk about it without some emotion, but I remember... 
our daughter in junior year of high school going off on a, a chorus trip to a lovely place. Her, the, her like chorus went to Italy for a week, which is great and nice. Um, but uh, she left at a, at a point in her life just of, of a lot of struggle. And I thought, oh, this is like the worst thing probably for her to go on this trip with all these other kids. And frankly, in a school district with not many, I mean, if any fellow believers, I'm not sure my daughter had any friends who knew Jesus because we live in a very secular part of the U.S. And honestly, I when she came back from that trip, I thought... I thought she's just going to be exhausted, you know, long flight. It's going to have been this intense kind of high school thing. And I'm just going to see my daughter come back like totally deflated. I will never forget the utter surprise of knowing she was coming to the door, opening our front door. She comes up with her luggage and all that. And she's glowing with joy and excitement. And she's, she opens the screen door and she says, Dad, God met me in Italy. And on this completely secular choral trip. She'd had a, a series of experiences in which she just unmistakably felt the care and love of God for her Praise mm. the Lord. in this absolutely transformative way. And she came back just totally set free from the kind of anchors of, of self-doubt and uh, all mm. shame and all the things girls in particular struggle with at, at that age. And the next year and a half weren't easy, but they were totally different because Jesus had shown up for her, like wow. in a place where I just didn't, I never would have imagined that. So, man, seeing, you know, um, I sometimes talk about their hero stories, victim stories, and rescue stories. So we tell a lot of hero stories where, hey, look how I made something great happen. or And we tell a lot of victim stories. Here's how I've been wrongly treated. Like, oh, you couldn't believe what happened. Can't believe what happened to me in traffic today or whatever. But the only stories actually worth telling are rescue stories, <laughs> which is, mm. I was in trouble and God got me out. And yeah. I feel like with both our kids, like in profound ways, all of us now share these rescue stories from the course of their lives. Amazing, amazing. Like, and it's all God. Like, it isn't anything we could do, but God did it. That is truly amazing. Andy, thank you so much for sharing such a, a vulnerable, emotional, true story. I know what you just shared is the hope of every Christian parent, right? Yep. That you would that you would be, well, sometimes invited into helping and sometimes invited mm-hmm. into what's going on, but even when you're not, that you can trust them with the Lord and that the Lord might introduce himself to your kids yeah, to say exactly. the kind of things he said to you already. Praise God for that. Mm-hmm. Now, Andy, a lot of the work that you've done, a lot of the writing that you've done that I've really loved has been about technology and culture. And you even wrote a book for families to think about what does it look like to be tech-wise at home, mm-hmm. tech-wise family. And you share some of the personal commitments that you guys have made. I want uh, We're going to get into those a little bit with you, but I wonder if you could share maybe just for a second about why is it so important for families right now to be conscientious about technology and the effect it's having on kids? And maybe a little bit about the the practicality of, of, of how that shaped the Crouch home. Mm. Well, this is the big deal of our time, is this story called technology that we're about 100 years into, really, because our great-grandparents, for all practical purposes, had none of it. And we have all of it. (laughs) And our kids definitely are surrounded by it and grow up not realizing there's another way. And I would say there's kind of two things I would call attention to, and then we can talk about some of the practices we tried to implement uh, and recommend to other people. And and the the fundamental one is that, uh, and I talk about this in in the book. Technology is really about making things easy. It's based on the idea that human life is hard. Human life has a lot of burdens, and wouldn't it be great if we could relieve ourselves of those burdens? And in some places and sometimes, it's not wrong to make things easier. 
But if things are always easy, you never grow and you are never mm. formed. You can play piano music all day and night in your house by pressing play on a piano playlist on Spotify, but that will never make you a pianist, someone who can actually play the piano. To play the piano, to play a musical instrument, you have to go through a lot of difficult uh, stuff. And and if you're a kid, so do your parents listening to you practice. <laughs> and it's through practice that you are formed into a musician. It's through practice that you uh, actually learn to like sink a free throw in basketball. And practice is difficult and pra- there are no shortcuts. And technology is all about shortcuts. It's about making our lives easier through getting these autonomous devices to do things for us. And this is so woven into our world that we don't think about the fact that you used to be formed just by heating your house. Like the problem of getting your house warm enough to enjoy being in it. Uh, I'm speaking from uh, Massachusetts here. Maybe in Texas, this (laughs) is not the same thing. Uh, Even in Dallas, though, it gets cold, right? Uh, A little bit. So you used to have to go out physically, first of all, identify promising species of tree, like because hardwood is better than softwood. So cut down the right tree, chop it up, split it. All this formed your body. You were out in nature. You would bring it in. You would have to learn how to build and tend the fire and you'd teach your kids how to do all these things. And these were formative activities. Today, you just change the setting on the thermostat. And there's some expert who comes in and services that furnace maybe once a year and who maintains that system, but I have no idea how to do it, you know? I And and so what I've done is I've traded formation for convenience. And it's mm. lovely that I can just say, oh, I'd like it to be 72 degrees instead of 71. But you just have to realize we're giving up formation every time we use a device, we're giving up formation. When you microwave a meal, you're giving up the formation of cooking a meal. When you watch a television show, you're giving up the formation of telling a story, of making up a story, or even just reading a story aloud and figuring out how to make it alive yourself. You're letting the experts make it alive for you on the TV. If you watch a football game, that's a totally different thing from going out in the backyard and playing a backyard football game, right? Yeah. So the basic thing is that that there's three formative environments for human beings, fundamentally, home, school, and church. These are the places where, especially in the early years of our lives, We're shaped into a kind of person that we're going to be in some ways for the rest of our lives. Um, Like it's really hard to learn a musical instrument at age 40, but at age six through 12, there's this amazing window of opportunity to become a musician. Um, And in these formative environments, homeschool and church, if we introduce a whole bunch of devices that just do things for us, we are going to turn formative environments into consumer environments. And instead of creating, we'll consume. That's the big context. The other thing I would say that that parents have to be triply aware of now is is another layer that has come through the screens, which is the power of the algorithm. And this mm-hmm. is the this is basically what social media is. This is especially today what TikTok is. Now a year from now, TikTok may be banned in the United States, but someone else will make a new t- TikTok. There's always a new product coming along. And the algorithms are getting good, getting better and better at giving us what we want at any given moment. The, the power that has over all of us, it doesn't matter what age you are, it's, it's powerful. But it is true that when you're young, you're sort of impressionable. And, and frankly, uh, kids have less to do, so they have more time to spend on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. And the amount of time that can get sucked into following the algorithm rather than making your own way in the world and figuring out how do I entertain myself today? How do I have a conversation with someone today? And the option to just let the algorithm give you more and more things to do and watch 
It's a massive addictive. It's it's just a slot machine for your heart, mind, soul, and, and even your body wow. in some ways. Wow. Mm. That's a good way to say it. All this is bad for grownups, but it's deformative in the formative stage of life that is childhood. And honestly, m- most people are just abdicating. They're like, I can't keep my kid away from the screens. Oh, well. But I just would want parents to kind of take on board as hard as it is, like, this is not good. <laughs> And it's not, it's definitely not best. And there, there is a best out there. There is a good out there, but it's hard. <laughs> and, and the whole message we've gotten living, living in a technological society is, isn't my life meant to be easy? And mm-hmm. the good life is hard. hard, hard now, good later, or easy now, hard later. It's actually hard either way. It's just hard today <laughs> or it's hard tomorrow or down the road. Anyway, sorry, that was a little bit of a long answer, but those are, to me, those yeah. are the big things. Like, Formative environments are the worst places for devices, and yet they're the places where we have a whole bunch of them. And then the algorithm specifically, once kids have access to screens, is going to keep them hooked in a loop of uh, dopamine and entertainment that doesn't help us grow. That's good. Preach, man. Preach. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Okay. Well, you talked a lot just now about doing things that are hard because it's formative. And so I'm going to share one of those commitments that you you talked about in the TechWise book that's very practical, which says we wake up before our devices do and they go to bed before we do. Can you talk about how that worked for you guys? And and I think we get why you recommend it, but talk about that for us. Yeah. Well, I'll just say, yeah, so I just gave kind of the the kind of worst case scenario and it's pretty bad. And unfortunately the worst case scenario is happening in a lot of homes and in our society. But, but there's a flip side of this, which is if they are in their proper place in our lives, these devices can be useful without owning us and mastering us. They can serve us without mastering Mm -hmm. us. And we found that the simple practice of, uh, for one thing, no phones going to bed with people, (laughs) like Mm. no sort of entertaining yourself until you fall asleep and no waking up with the screen. So our whole family parked our all our devices in the kitchen well before bedtime, actually. And then when we got up in the morning, and this is something I actually started doing while I was writing The TechWise Family, I realized I was waking up in the morning and I didn't have the phone with me in the bedroom, but I would go downstairs barely awake and start making my tea. And what would I do? Of course, I would pick up my phone. And there were Back then, I was not as good as I am now. I don't have any notifications on my home screen anymore. But I had all these notifications like, hey, you're, you're important. Things have happened. You know, here, here's what you need to know. And within 15 minutes of waking up, I'm like plunged into, you know, uh, anxiety. I need to respond, uh, you know, whatever all those yeah. notifications want me to feel. And I thought, this cannot possibly be the best way to start my day. So I started this practice that I've continued to the present day six or seven years later. Every morning before I look at a screen, I go outside. So I actually walk out the door and just stand out in, outside in whatever the weather is. It can be hot and humid or cold and snowing, raining, <laughs> or some days it's beautiful. Some mornings it's beautiful. And I just stand there and I'm, a, I, I'm free of whatever that screen is going to tell me. Hmm. So this practice, it, it, it rewires, I, I think that's not a totally wrong metaphor. Like, you know, we're always firing our neurons, like wiring them together to expect certain kinds of things from the world. And if you start your day kind of present in creation, ideally outside, and if you end your day the way we're meant to, uh, like sort of settling into rest, 
rather than kind of uh, screeching to a start at the beginning with whatever's on the screen and then screeching to a halt at the end where you're finally so exhausted you put the thing down, you sleep better. (laughs) It opens up space for prayer. Mm -hmm. For those who are married, it opens up space for conversation, especially in the evening. Like instead of... (laughs) Saw this one card from uh, that said uh, for like an engaged couple that said I I can't think of anyone I would rather spend the rest of my life looking at my phone in bed with than you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously a joke, but, but. not actually a joke. <laughs> Pretty on the nose. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, what I found is if you have these these sort of guardrails somehow the phone stops owning you in the same way. And and I found when I really got into this practice of going outside first and only later on picking up my phone, it just didn't have the same power to control me because I'd started my day in the right place and I was ending my day kind of with rest and so forth. So even more important for kids. Kids, um, you know, by the way, uh, when you ask teenagers, at least there was one large-scale study in the United Kingdom that did this, that asked teenagers, what would you want your parents to know or to help you with about your phone use? I think a lot of parents, the first thing we think about is uh, sexual content and other content that's not appropriate for kids, and that is an issue. But the kids themselves said, what I wish my parents would help me with is I'm not getting to sleep. It was Mm. their sleep. Because kids who take their phones to bed with them do not turn them off. And and they, in fact, stay engaged with other kids through texting and messaging, as well as all the algorithms. And it disrupts sleep in a very profound way. So for a, for a kid of any age, and of course for us as grownups too, to be able to go into your bedroom, have that be a place of quiet and rest, rather than another place actually where high school shows up. <laughs> like, like yeah. Because th- this is like the worst thing for teenagers is my kids would come home because we had these limits and they'd be free of all the pressure and complexities as well as joys and delights and kind of addictive possibilities of high school. And they they would close the door and it would be, you know, out there. But if you bring the phone with you into your bedroom, high school is with you 24-7. Like yeah. that's so bad for a kid. So I don't know. That's Does that great help, point. Chelsea? That's, that's a really oh, good yeah. point. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. No, I have a friend who a long time ago, I mean, maybe like less than a year, she she bought a real life alarm clock yes. and, said I, and said, I'm putting my phone somewhere else. Exactly. And, and I thought, that sounds good, but I don't know if I'm ready for it. I just, <laughs> and, but I, th- I think you may have pushed me over the edge. So I oh, almost man. picked up my phone while you're talking to buy an alarm clock off Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> but then I felt the convenience. like, <laughs> I need that convenience. I need the formation. I'll build you an alarm clock. I was going to say, <laughs> oh, there you go. yeah, I need somebody to build it. They used to put little, they used to put nails in candles. And then when the candle burned down enough, the nail would fall and wake you up. And we no can do way. that, Chels. Let's do it today. What do you think? I, you're too clever. You, you're too fire safety conscious to do something like that, Adam. <laughs> and the light would mess with our rhythms. Yeah. yeah. So your kids aren't your alarm clock? Is that what you're saying? You're, you know, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just saying. No, our kids, our kids are, are better than us. They wake up and they make their lunches and they eat their breakfast yeah. and they put on their clothes and we come out and all that's done. They have the formation of putting milk on cereal. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. There you go. It does. It makes me think of just you know in the Bible when it says we can't serve two masters. And That's you're right. right. Mm-hmm. This thing owns us. We're sl- enslaved to it. It's, it masters us, and that algorithm. It's it's leading us and forming us. And yeah, yeah. That's powerful. Uh, another great commitment I loved in the book is we use screens for a purpose and we use them together rather than using them aimlessly and alone. 
the heart behind this, that technology is not inherently evil, but that it's something that your family right. can do together is beautiful. Were any of these commitments ever points of contention within your home with your kids or did they accept them easily? Yeah, uh, there was contention. I remember phones wandering up to the bedroom and we'd be like, where is that phone going? (laughs) (laughs) And there was some resistance. Um, I mean, our our son had a lot of aptitude actually for like computers and that kind of thing. And and so we, we, I totally believe in kids learning to code, by the way, after, after they're uh, like 11, 12, 13 um, is a great age to learn uh, actually algorithmic thinking. That's not letting the algorithm work for you. It's actually building things that, you know, mm, that's good. how to, how to think that way is it's an important part of learning, I think. So we gave him access to the computer for that, but, uh, <laughs> he, he definitely found his way to like online games that, were very, very absorbing for him and got very addicting for him. This would be like age 11 or so. And so there were a lot of uh, moments where we realized, we realized, oh boy, we have to pull back here. We have to reassert kind of our family's commitments. And and the there was resistance, absolutely. If you do this early, it's easier. And so That's our, good. you know, uh, I always feel, I feel for the folks who, come to this these topics with you know uh, early teens and realize oh my goodness we haven't thought about this and it's really not best and we need to make some changes and i will tell you you should expect like tantrums you should expect just incredible resistance but it always follows a pattern and i've seen this play out in my own family at times and in others many many others at this point there's three stages uh, to kind of resetting your family patterns uh, around this stuff. And the first is, is utter disorientation, dysregulation, and conflict. <laughs> so just everyone hates each other. Everyone's saying so. It, and your kids tell you they hate you. And, you know, it's horrible. And you, you, you push through that if you do. The second stage is, the best word I have for it is kind of emptiness. People are too tired to fight, (laughs) but no one knows quite what to do. And it's just this sense of exhaustion, like, oh, what do we do? And then comes creativity, and you discover new ways of living together. And this will happen if you go on a week-long vacation and say, hey, how about if we have no screens on vacation? The first three days will be horrible. Like, Mm. the next day and a half will be like, "Eh, we don't know what to do. And then the last three will be amazing. Like, kids and adults will just come alive. And very often at the end of that, it's the kids who are like, oh, this was the best ever. Like, let's do that again. But you have to be prepared for the dysregulation stage and also just the emptiness stage where you don't know, like, what do we do without these things? I kind of wonder if kids love it because it's the parents are addicted too. And oh, so the reason they completely. finish that vacation and they love it and want to do do that more is because they're oh, now they 100%. have their parents' attention and hundred percent and their cre- and their parents' creativity. So it's not just their parents telling them to go be creative, but it's like like you said in the quote, it's togetherness is something they're doing together, which is yeah. awesome. Yes. And all this stuff, you know, one of my axioms, like axiomatic principles is it's very rare that you should have one role for the kids and one for the parents. We all do this mm. together. Uh, we all That's take good. a Sabbath together. That's we so all put our phones in the kitchen together. Uh, and yes, uh, when my daughter Amy wrote a follow-up to my book called, her book is called My TechWise Life. And for that, we did some research uh, for that book. And we we did a survey where we asked teenagers this question. <laughs> if you could change one thing in your relationship with your parents, what would it be? Open-ended question. Most common answer is, I wish they would spend less time on their phones and more mm-hmm. time talking to me. 
Wow. That's what the kids said. They are they're just so desperate for their parents to set it down yeah. and well, be creative. Well, let me them. turn the tables. If my kids were making great TikTok videos, I would be spending more time with them that <laughs> they're popping up on my algorithm. It's really their fault if you think about it. <laughs> they're just not viral enough, really. That's yeah. the problem. That's the problem. They're sitting around. That. Yeah. I'd be formed by that. I'd, I could, I could yeah. do that. Well, Andy, there's about there's about a thousand more questions I'd love to ask you, but I know oh, like I, I want to be a really good steward of your time. You've written other great books that I think really apply to parents as well. I don't know if you ever have parents think about strong and weak. When you're talking about high authority so combined good. with high mm-hmm. vulnerability is a great concept for the home as well. But that's a, a tremendous book that really I, I read thinking about leadership, but you think about it leading in the home as well. That yeah. is a a great philosophy. I hope readers will check that out as well. Before we let you go, if if listeners want to keep up with you, keep up with what you're putting out or some of the things you have coming up, I'd love to hear you share any of that. And then I'd love it too, if you would share some ways that our listeners can pray for you and for the Crouch family. Well, that's easy. Pray for Catherine and me in particular, as we care for our own parents. Uh, my mom's still living, her her father and mother's still living in, in a very challenging season of life. So yeah, if you think of us, that's the number one prayer thing, mm-hmm. though you can also pray for... Uh, the addition of a daughter to our family through marriage uh, and for Timothy and Sophia as they get ready to marry, uh, which just is a great moment of joy for us. Keeping up with what I do is a little tricky because I'm less and less on social media, to be totally honest. But but I will, anything really important eventually, I mean, like a book shows up on my website, which is andy-crouch.com, andycrouch.com with a hyphen in the middle. But if it's really worth it, someone will tell you about it anyway, so you don't really need to follow me. <laughs> like, That's good. <laughs> so if you want to follow, follow you'll, I'm glad that was your answer. <laughs> I think we would all judge That's you great. if you were like, and here's my uh, TikTok and here's my Instagram. And- <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. When I walk out my front door in the morning and take a deep breath, whatever the weather is, if nobody's handing me an Andy Crouch book in the next couple <laughs> months, I'll be really, really disappointed. Because if it's worth reading, someone would be there waiting for me. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to that moment. <laughs> Andy, thanks for inviting us to pray for yes. you. Thanks for inviting us into not only the the household that you led, but some of the, the research you've done, the writing you've done. Yeah. It has helped our family. It's helped so many families. So thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your time today. It has been a pleasure. Thank you all so much. Well, thanks for listening, friends. If you think this is as important as we do to disciple our families, please help us out by giving us a great review wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit one of our sponsors, and I'll challenge you, share this episode with one of your friends and have a conversation about it. If you want to keep up with us or join the conversation, you can follow the Family Reception Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You will not find Andy there, but you will find us. Uh, We love you, listeners. We look forward to all God has for us in the next couple weeks. We'll see you next week.